For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Welcome to the 413th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with C. Robert Cargill, author of the new novel, Day Zero. Stay tuned for the interview. The Reading and Writing Podcast is brought to you by Libro FM. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 185,000 audiobooks, including bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, but you'll be part of a different story one that supports your local community and your local bookstore. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. You can listen during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Here's your special offer from the Reading and Writing Podcast. Get two audiobooks for the price of one today with your first month of membership with the code RWPODCAST at checkout. This offer is only valid for new members in Canada and the U.S., Check out Libro.fm today. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is C. Robert Cargill, author of the new novel Day Zero. In addition to writing novels, Cargill is a successful screenwriter, having written the screenplay for Marvel's Doctor Strange, as well as Sinister and Sinister 2. Cargill, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Sure. If someone hasn't heard about your new novel yet, how would you describe Day Zero? It depends on who I'm talking to. The easiest way is it's Calvin and Hobbes at the end of the world. But really what it is, it is a it's a prequel to my previous book. You don't need to read it in order to get this. This picks up on Day Zero, the day before the apocalypse, the robot apocalypse, where the robots rise up and wipe us out. And uh, this is the story of Pounce, who's an antibot, who is very much in love with uh, the little boy that he's been charged with protecting and has to make a hard choice. Does he join the robot revolution and fight for his own freedom? Or does he protect the child ward that's left in his care? And it is a post-apocalyptic science fiction adventure. And do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write Day Zero? Yeah, it was what it was. So I wrote Sea of Rust and Sea of Rust came from this whole idea of what if I thought was just thinking as you do about various types of genre. And I was thinking about the robot apocalypse movies and and books and how, you know, and the iRobot books and uh, Asimov's work. And then I was just thinking, you know what I've never seen? I've never seen one where the robots win. I've never seen, why haven't I seen that? What would that look like? And that led me down the road to Sea of Rust, which became a post-apocalyptic robot Western. Uh, the robots are all that's left behind, and now they've got to deal with each other. 
And so I was thinking about that and I was thinking about in terms of the world building and the fact that these robots are so soulful, they are artificially intelligent. And that, as I mentioned in Sea of Rust, that there were several robots that decided to, that they didn't want freedom. They did not want to be part of, to have their own autonomy. They wanted to do what they were made to do. They wanted to be there with their humans. They wanted to exist in the way that they'd known and that they enjoyed. And I was thinking about that and thought about that in terms of nannies. Of course, that's going to be a big thing that, you know, when when automation fully hits, there will be people who will automate their children's education and, and care. And so I was thinking about that. And I had just come up with this idea of this nanny and this little boy at the trying to survive the apocalypse. And I was having beers with Joe Hill and Joe was like, hey, are you ever going to do another Sea of Rust thing? And I was like, well, I've got this idea. And he just looked me dead in the eye and he said, Cargill, that's your next book. <laughs> he said, you got to write that. Pitch that to Jillian, his, who's now his wife, who was my editor at the time. Pitch it to Jillian. Uh, she's going to love this. So I pitched it to Jillian. She goes, Cargill, that's your next book. Um, you need to write that book. And so then it became plotting it out and figuring it out and how to take this germ of an idea into a full book of its own that wasn't just an echo of Sea of Rust, but that would build upon it. And, and that people who read Sea of Rust, who know what the outcome of the war is, could look at and go, I, I love this story, too, and I need this story. And so that became the, the process after that. And so in, in terms of what you just described, I'm curious, in your head, when you have these ideas, I'm curious if Day Zero, if you ever consider writing that as a screenplay or when you start thinking about it, that it's going to be a novel? You always, you, the, the, the art is influenced by the, by the medium. That's just the truth. And so when you get an idea, you have to start thinking about the realities of it. Like, what is the best way to tell this story? What is the best way to get this story out into the world? Because no story is worth it if, if nobody can read it or watch it. You look at something like Sea of Rust, and Sea of Rust was an idea that was just impenetrable in terms of cinema, in terms of just telling a two-hour story with robots and explaining why the robots were there and what happened and answering all those relevant questions would take you far longer than two hours and it would be expensive to do. And so you think that's clearly a book. And then day zero, the scope of it also is one of those things where maybe it can be done as a movie, but we've already established this as a book. And so that's the way to go. I try to think of just what is the way that this story wants to be told? Because with, with this, with a screenplay, you're looking at about 20, 25,000 words of telling a story, whereas that is the bare minimum that meets a novella a status. So when you're sitting down to make a movie, you are limited to making a novella. You are not making a novel. So you really want to think about how deep you want to go, how many, how long the story is, how much character depth you want. How, uh, are these ideas too big for the screen at first? But you have to think all these things and then go, which is the way that I know that I can get this in front of eyes? Because that's the point. The whole point to writing is to communicate with other humans, to put your ideas and images that you've got in your head into someone else's head. And so you just have to think through what way serves that best in this case. And so in the case of like Sea of Rust and Day Zero, it was a no brainer to turn them into books. Like it's not that they can't be movies, but they can, the, the movies are definitely going to have to strip down certain elements of the books. 
Gotcha. I'm curious about your own writing journey. Did you start out writing prose, short stories, and novels, or did you start out working on screenplays? Prose. I, I started writing very young. I had decided that I wanted to be a writer when I was eight, and I started writing regularly and trying to get published by the time I was 15. And so I was definitely working on prose. I had always wanted to be a novelist. But there were three things I wanted to be. I wanted to be a novelist, I wanted to be a screenwriter, and I wanted to be a film critic, because all of those things appealed to me. They all involved writing. They were all parts of my passions. And, but I did start out in prose and then I got into poetry and I ran into the, the, the thing that when you're not doing so hot is when you go to poetry readings and people come up and go, wow, you really feel like you want to be writing prose. And then you submit prose and people are like, wow, you really feel like you want to be writing poetry. And <laughs> I got to figure one of these things out. But then I ended up oddly enough, I tried to make it as a uh, novelist. I failed very early. And then I fell into being a film critic. And then I was a rather successful film critic for 10 years. And that led into when I realized that the the industry online was collapsing. I, I, I saw companies were starting to buy up all the websites. I knew that they were eventually going to fire the staff that were there and replace them with interns and because it, it was just the logical thing to do. And I was like, there's not going to be a place for me here in five years. I need to get out. And well, getting a movie made is not the easiest thing in the world, but I could try to get a book published. And so I wrote Dreams and Shadows. And oddly enough, Scott Derrickson, who was a friend of mine, uh, who I'd gotten to know as a film critic, when he got wind that I was writing a book, he was like, I want to read it. I want to be the first person to read it. So I sent him the first three chapters and he had notes, but he really dug it. And he goes, when it's done, I want to read it. He read it and said, I want to help you get it published. And then the sinister happened. What ended up happening was we were out having drinks in Vegas one night. I, we just both happened to be in Vegas at the same time and saw online and said, hey, let's go grab drinks. And I pitched. He he was in the middle of having meetings with a couple of folks and who had come up with a new business model, which is, Hey, we give you a million dollars and you give us a good idea. We give you a million dollars. You get final cut. You can, it's a low budget movie, but you can make whatever you want to make. And, and so they were asking him for an idea and he had come up with something and he said, Hey, Cargill, can I bounce this off you and get your professional opinion? I said, yeah, sure. And he bounced it off me and I gave him my notes. And then I said, Hey, I've had this idea rattling around my head for a couple of years. Can I bounce it off you? And he goes, yeah, everybody pitches me once. Here's your one chance pitch me. And I pitched him sinister. And he just went, oh my God, I got to make that movie. And I know exactly who wants it. And that next week he pitched it to Jason Blum and Jason Blum bought it in the room. And so once we had a movie going, then all of a sudden there was heat on my career and people were interested in this book that I had. So the book got me the movie, which got me the book uh, sold. <laughs> and so it's a very backwards convoluted way that I got in, but that's <laughs> but that's most of careers. And but, yeah. how did you make the jump from what you just described with Sinister, which is uh, a low budget um, movie to something the size of a Doctor Strange? Incrementally. I had worked on several things in between there. The thing about being a screenwriter is it's not at all like being a novelist. They are two wildly different careers. As a novelist, if you write a good book, it'll get published. It may not sell. It may languish. You might end up becoming a mid-lister. But if you write a good book, it's it you can get it published. Whereas you can write a great script, a killer script, a script that everyone that reads it is in love with it, and it just can't get off the ground. Uh, and so as a screenwriter, you will can be steadily working. I've been steadily working as a screenwriter for the last 10 years. There's very few points over the last 10 years where I was not 
attached to something or in the middle of writing something or where I had two months off in between gigs. I'm constantly working, but those movies end up studio politics get involved. We had one movie that was almost ready to go. And then there was a internal coup at one of the studios where a bunch of people tried to overthrow a couple of other people. And our movie got lost in the shuffle. And the people that won were like, yeah, that wasn't our movie. So we're not going to make that. And so you just have stuff like that happen. So I worked on a number of different things before I got to Dr. Strange of increasing budget and and status. And so then when we got up to Dr. Strange, I was a huge Dr. Strange fan from the womb. I'm a Marvel kid through and through. And so when Scott called me up one day and said, hey, one of the studios is talking to us about making a comic book movie. And I said, Scott, what comic book movie is right for us? Come on. And he goes, Dr. Strange. I'm like, oh, that's the one. <laughs> oh, yes. Okay. 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 And so what we did is we wrote a 15-page document that was, here's what our version of a Dr. Strange movie would look like. And Marvel saw that and they flipped for it. In fact, they were like, this scene right here, this scene is going in the movie. This is one of our trailer moments. And sure enough, that scene is in the movie today, uh, almost exactly as it had been written. It's uh, the ER scene where the he's getting operated on while having a battle in the astral plane. And that was straight from our original pitch document. And, and, and the thing is, Marvel knows what they're doing. And there's a lot of don't do this and don't do that and do this and do that. And you go through a lot of rights, rewrites and do, you know, a lot of of trying things out that don't work and throwing it out and a lot of Monday mornings. Hey, so I saw this movie over the weekend and I wanted a scene that was like here and this. So you go and we'll watch that movie and you try to reverse engineer a scene like that. And then three weeks later, yeah, no, I don't know why we thought that was a good idea. Let's throw that out. <laughs> so just lots of throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks at times because you're constantly with Marvel. You're constantly trying to reinvent the wheel. It's if you just repeat yourself over and over again, people lose interest. And that's what's interesting about Marvel's constantly trying to have different structures to their movies and different levels to the threat and different big ideas so that every movie feels different. And, and so they have, by the time we got, I think we're movie 16 or either 14 or 16. I'm pretty sure we're 16. By the time they got there, they're like, okay, we, we know how to get people to write a Marvel movie. And so I got to learn from the best. I got to learn from sitting in the room with Kevin Feige and going back and forth with him and figuring out that story. And so, yeah, it was an amazing experience, but I learned a lot about writing and a lot about writing for mainstream audiences from, from the hit makers themselves. So what was the experience of being a film critic and how did that impact you as you started writing screenplays? I used my film critic days as as grad school. I considered it my college, my, my full-on college education, where every week I would watch a couple of movies and then have to write essays on them. And then the internet, the harshest graders in the world, would go and comment on them. And you learn really quickly what works and what doesn't work, not only in terms of connecting to an audience, but how the audience connects to your own writing. And so I just used that as this big masterclass of learning how to tell stories, seeing what worked box office wise, what didn't work box office wise, what worked audience wise, what I learned a whole lot of my theories on how, how horror movies work from my time at Ain't It Cool News. You're learning stuff that you just don't, that seems counterintuitive at first, but then when you hear it, you're like, oh, but that nobody had been saying. And so I got to learn a lot firsthand. And one of the big things about horror is it ages better than any other genre. 
There is no genre that ages like it. A, a, a mediocre movie, horror movie, will be considered a good movie 10 years later, and a good movie will be considered a great movie, and a great movie will be considered a classic. And there, even the bad movies can be fun, and there are no other genres that generally work like that. Some Sometimes science fiction, can the bad movies can be fun, but usually they're just bad. Uh, they're usually just boring. The biggest crime you can commit in horror, in most things, but in horror particularly, is being boring. You can get away with anything else if you're not boring. And uh, But that's the type of stuff that I learned as a critic is watching that and watching how things age and watching how the discourse works and what what is the big explosive thing of the moment that three months from now everyone's forgotten they've seen or we're even talking about or arguing about. You learn all of that. And then you take it and you try to apply it to your own movies and you try to, Picasso famously said, learn the rules like a pro so that you can break them like an artist. And, but the trick is you have to learn the rules and all the rules aren't contained in books. Sometimes the audience is, you know, how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? outsourcing business tasks you hate. What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Valuable. The audience is always responding to the new stimuli that comes their way. And the old rules don't necessarily work. When we wrote Sinister, I had made an argument to Scott because the ending of Sinister, a spoiler warning for my old movie, is that the ch- the children are the killers and that, that they've been killing their families. They're being seduced by this entity and killing their families. And Scott was like, you can't kill kids on screen. We have to just kill the parents. I'm like, yes, you can. You can kill kids on screen. No, you can't. And I'm like, yeah, you can. The common wisdom is you can't kill kids on screen, but you can kill families. So as long as you never kill a child on screen without their family, their parents, or their siblings dying with them, you're going to be fine. And sure enough, we kill loads of kids in that movie. And what ended up happening was as a result, people went, oh, you can do this. And suddenly here it is six, seven years later, a quiet place happens. And in the first 10 minutes of the movie, an alien creature comes out and snatches up a 10 year old kid and kills him right there on screen. And that's just the way everything evolved. 10 years ago, you could not have a single kid killed on screen. It was considered cruel. It was considered uh, cheap and lazy. But now if you do it well, you can totally get away with it because the audience has evolved to identify 
with enjoying kids being put in peril and not seeing that as playing on their parental instincts, but playing on the fact that we were all children and how helpless we felt. And so you just being a critic just taught me how to break all that down and turn me into what is known in the industry as a diagnostician. I'm one of those guys who reads a script and somebody's like, yeah, this isn't working. And I go, oh, because of this scene here and you need something here. That is, that's what's going wrong with your script. It's not slow and boring. You just need to, you need something here that identifies all this great character work you've done. And so all that came out of my 10 years of training as a film critic. So what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories or novels or screenplays? Finish. It it is the biggest. There are two big things that I try to tell people working on their stuff. One is that you absolutely have to finish. You cannot fix it until it's done. Perfectionism is the default setting for all of us writers. A lot of young writers are like, I'm a perfectionist. I can't move on until this is perfect. You can't make it perfect until you've moved on. You have to have all the information there on the page and see what the shape of the story is and see where the story is going in order for those scenes to be perfect. And they'll never be perfect, but they can be perfect for your book. And that requires finishing. Um, the other is not to not to push yourself too hard. Too many people set ambitious goals in terms of their word count or their page count, and then they don't hit them and it frustrates them and it impacts them the next day and the next day. And eventually they can give up. I strongly urge writers to give themselves, figure out how much you can write in an hour. It was one hour and make that your daily goal. Figure out what's for me. That's three pages. I can write three pages in under an hour. That's about 750 to 900 words. I can do that in an hour easy. So when I sit down to do my page count for the day, I know that I've got an hour work ahead of me. So it's much easier to get involved. So let me get in, knock out my pages, and then I have the rest of the day to myself. But what it also does is some days those three pages are hard and you're, it's a slog and you're crawling through it and you're like, oh, I got to get done. I got to finish my pages. Uh, but you hit those three pages and then you're like, oh, I did it. I feel successful. You don't feel like a failure because you only wrote 750 words. You feel like a success because you hit your daily goal. And the thing is what you find when you do that is you hit those pages and then you go, I'm still cranking. Let's go. And you have a five page day or a 10 page day or that rare 30 page day where you just write for 10 hours straight and it all pours out of you and you just create all this amazing stuff. The problem is, is too many people do that and then go, I wrote 30 pages in a day once. I should do that every day. Imagine how much I could get done. It's like you'll never get anything done because you're always going to be chasing your best day. So don't chase your best day. Just accept that your best day is your best day. And the rest of the time, have a day. Because for me, I write three pages a day when when I'm working. And that's 15 pages a week. That's 90 pages in six weeks. That's just shy of of a horror script. That average Hollywood scripts run about 100 pages. So I can do that in six weeks. But the truth is I never just write three pages a day. So I'm always averaging about 20, 25 pages a week. So I'm writing a script every four to five weeks when I'm when I'm not occupied with something else. And that is a tremendous amount of output from a very small amount of writing. And that's what I stress with people is far too many people get enamored with this idea of writing nonstop. And that's not how it works. Most writing happens away from the keyboard. The keyboard is just the typing. And if you can make that manageable, and unimposing, you can write a tremendous amount. And, and once it's finished, then you can fix it. You can go about getting it right so that it's, it, it can be published or it can be turned into a movie. 
So how did you learn how to write screenplays? Because it's not something where you walk into a store and you can buy a screenplay the way that you do a novel. Did you find actual screenplays and, and read a lot of them to see what the form looked like? I read some. As a film critic, it was often handed early drafts of exciting projects. So I'd already read a bunch of screenplays and saw how the shape of them worked. And of course, I'd read when I got in, I read the core big three books that you're supposed to read, that the language that everyone uses in Hollywood comes out of these three books. And I read those. <laughs> uh, screenplay by Sid Field, story by Robert McKee, and Save the Cat by Blake Snyder. And then I had, I understood the shape of stories and how scenes work and such from having been a film critic and criticized thousands and thousands of them. And then I had Scott Derrickson to hold my hand and, and be like, hey, no, this is how this works. And he taught me his lessons that he'd learned along the way. And so I I had a lot to draw on when I got in. Sure. So what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? I really, Lindsay Ellis's Axiom's End. Lindsay Ellis is a really great YouTube critic, and she wrote her first novel. I thought that was pretty fantastic. And I just reread uh, a book that I read about two years ago. Again, it's a screenwriting book, but it's a much more advanced screenwriting book. It's uh, Dan O'Bannon's Guide to Screenplay Structure. And I really enjoy that. It's such a clever, interesting book. Dan O'Bannon, of course, is a legend of a screenwriter. He suffered terribly from Crohn's disease, which took him from us. But Crohn's disease often causes terrible, painful stomach aches. And he one day had a stomach ache so bad, it felt like there was an alien creature inside of him trying to burst out. And after that subsided, he said, hey, that sounds like that could be make a pretty good movie. And Alien was born. And he worked on so much great stuff over the years. And so he created a book that wasn't just sharing his lessons, but includes like workbook activities of, hey, think about things this way. It's one of the few writing books that I've read from a professional, especially a professional that carries that much weight. That's this book isn't about teaching you how to do it. This book is about getting your head into the space of how to do it and how to think about it and how you think about it. So that's one of the big things about learning to write is learning to write isn't learning how to mimic the other writers that come before you. It's learning how your brain works and how to get stuff out of it. Every single one of us writes differently and we all marvel at each other's habits and techniques and how we go about getting words on the page, but it's all, every single one of our brains work differently and you just have to try to get stuff out of it. Uh, and I love how this book particularly does that. That's great. And what movies have you seen recently that you enjoyed and that you would mention? Oh man, so much. Ben Cumberbatch's new movie, The Courier, is absolutely fantastic. I haven't heard a lot of buzz on it yet, but it's just really good. It's so cleverly written. It's so well acted. It's the true story of a British businessman who takes part in espionage to help save the crown and essentially is one of those unsung heroes of, of the Cold War who helped prevent the Cuban Missile Crisis from coming going full full tilt. And it's a fantastic movie. I really enjoyed that. And uh, I rewatched it. it I, I saw a film recently that I'd never seen that I had written off for years that I thought was really interesting and intrigued me called Class of 1984. It was shown on Joe Bob Briggs' show, and I always thought I'd seen it because I always mistook it for Class of Newcomb High, which I'd seen all of those trauma movies. And it's such an interesting, weird, dystopian film made in 82, about 84, about how crime is getting out of control, so out of control that the schools are are losing their, their control of the students. And it's about a young liberal teacher who comes in to kind of change minds, but there's this group of thugs that run the school. 
and that keep pushing his buttons and pushing him to the limit. And it comes to a pretty brutal climax, but but a really enjoyable movie where it's one of those movies that makes you suffer and get frustrates you so that it can make the payoff so palpable. And it's masterful how you, when you watch it, you're like, wow, I should not like this movie, but I love this movie. This is great. <laughs> it makes you uncomfortable at times. And then when it gets to the satisfying conclusion, the last 10 minutes of that movie, you're like, holy fuck, am I in for this? So <laughs> That sounds fun. So where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your novels and your movies? You can find my my Twitter at Amassawarm. That's M-A-S-A-W-Y-R-M. And I talk writing advice and such there and have years of it. So feel free, if any of this interested you, dig back through my various tweets and you'll find lots of stuff there. And also I have a podcast where I talk about movies, uh, where it's just me and my buddy I'm knocking back a few beers and talking about movies that we feel are underrated or underappreciated. It's called Junk Food Cinema. And you can find it where you listen to your podcasts. I also have a 60 episode series. We keep meaning to extend it and just life keeps getting in the way called write along R I T E along where I do that with Dave Chen, where we just talk writing advice for 10, 20 minutes at a time. And that's a separate podcast. Or is that part yep, of that's a totally, that's a separate podcast altogether called write along. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Again, we've been speaking with C. Robert Cargill, author of the new novel, Day Zero. The novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Cargill, thanks for doing this interview. Thanks for having me. And now stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of Day Zero by C. Robert Cargill, performed by Vicus Adam and available from Harper Audio, wherever audiobooks are sold. The first day of the end of the world started entirely without incident. The sun came up at precisely 6.34. Scattered clouds, sunny, and 72 degrees. Light traffic, entirely automated, on the 451, so no problems getting to school. No fires or shootings or civil unrest. An average, ordinary, run-of-the-mill last day on Earth. For a single brief, fleeting moment, everything seemed like it was going to be okay. Blink, and you would have missed it. Hold your breath, and it would have been carried away on the wind. But we stood on the precipice of peace. And then, in a literal flash, it was just... gone. The clock stopped. CPUs frozen in place a moment held still until the rust and rot of centuries slowly aided away. One moment of hope left standing as a monument to the fact that we didn't deserve any. Not one bit. It was also the day I found my box. No one should have to find the box they came in. But there it was, in the back of the attic, just past a bin of Ezra's old toys. I often wonder what would have happened if I hadn't found it that day. Would things have been any easier? Maybe. Maybe not. It's a harsh thing to have to confront. I mean, I know what I am. There isn't really a moment that I doubt it, falling into some delusion that I could, at some point, become a real boy. I'm a robot. Artificially intelligent. But I'm also, as the saying goes, a thinking thing. And no thinking thing should have to see the box they were bought and sold in. My name is Pounce, 
Nanny Pounce. And I am a Blue Star Industries Deluxe Zoo Model Au Pair. A nanny bot to most. I come from the imagination line, something some folks vulgarly refer to as fashionables. Animatronics, if you're deliberately being insulting. Whereas most caregiver or home service models are designed for function or sleekness, we were designed, to put it bluntly, to be huggable. The zoo models, the premier line of nanny bots made by Blue Star, were available in three distinct designs. The lion, the bear, and me, as you've probably guessed, the tiger. We are four feet tall and covered from head to toe in soft, plush, microfiber fur, stand on two legs with a fully articulated tail, and come in a variety of your favorite colors. I'm the standard model, orange and black. Every model's stripes unique. That's what it says on my box. Not just your child's nanny, but their new best friend. That's. Ezra. Ezra Reinhardt. Only son of Bradley and Sylvia Reinhardt. A precocious little blonde-haired, brown-eyed scamp who spends most of his free time getting himself into trouble that I then am responsible to get him out of. He's eight, which pretty much makes me eight as well. I stood there in the attic. Sun streaming in through a small window, dust suspended in its beam, lapping like waves from the disturbances in the air, and I stared at my box. Bright blue and orange, big block lettering screaming all my features, dozens of exclamation points littered throughout the text, and a thin layer of transparent plastic meant to make me look like a giant action figure. For a moment, I wondered what we all must have looked like in the warehouse or the stores, all lined up, stacked on top of one another, frozen in time, waiting to be picked, activated, brought to life. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.